if you can build a good story around who you are as a developer, that's going to go a long way to actually you know, putting you in the front of the pack. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 42 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I trust you are well, and your projects are moving along nicely. Today on the show, we are going to be talking project marketing with some great tips and ideas on how to market your next development. Before we get to that, I want to thank all the people who have contacted me asking about the property development training course I mentioned in the previous episode. It's good to see that people are genuinely interested in taking charge of their futures and tackling something they really love. I now have some further information I can share with you about the program. It is a 12-month course, accessible from anywhere in Australia, or around the world for that matter, with personal help and hand-holding to answer all your questions and make sure your first development and each one after that, is a success. I've been through the course myself, so I'm happy to vouch for its quality and usefulness. It is run by someone I trust who is actively doing developments, not somebody who did a project five years ago, or wants to share the profits with you. And I believe that will give you the knowledge, tools, and support to become a successful developer. You will learn the essential fundamentals of developing, like how to do a quick project feasibility, what to assess when looking for a development site, getting a planning permit, choosing a builder, getting finance, and a whole lot more. You will get all the tools and resources which I've used to get me to where I am today. Things like checklists, feasibility spreadsheets, videos on all parts of the developing process, everything you need to get your development career started. It is a well-structured and well-paced course, so if you are interested in discovering more, email me Justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com and we can take it further. Thanks also to the listener from St. Lucia in the Caribbean who contacted me this month. It is humbling to have international listeners contacting me and thanking me for putting the show together, even if he couldn't resist having a little dig about the Australian cricket team and their ball-tampering woes. We might get him on the show in the future to hear about developing in St. Lucia. And perhaps even organise a property developer podcast fact-finding mission to see what conditions on the island are really like. The photos I've seen of St. Lucia look amazing. Now, if you are like me, then you are forever interested in finding out as much information about developing as you can. And you probably like listening to podcasts. I originally started this show because I wanted to share the conversations I was having with developers and there were no regular podcasts about property development. Well, since then, a number of podcasts have kicked off which cover property development. I thought I'd share them with you so you can check them out if you're interested. So there are four podcasts that I'm aware of about developing, and they are, one, The Business of Property Development by former guest Shane Hiscock, two, The Constructive Finance Podcast by another guest, Dan Holden, Three, Development Ready Podcast by the boys of developmentready.com.au. And four, the newest kids on the block called City Shapers by the publishers of the Urban Developer website. There is also a short 10-part series on property development by the business concepts group called Property Development Podcast Show, which outlines the process of developing and some key things you should consider along the way. You can find all these shows through the Apple Podcast app, 
or your favorite Android podcatcher. Otherwise, check out the websites for each of the shows and happy listening. As for me, I've been working on a new development site, which I've agreed to buy. It has taken longer than I thought to sign the contract, but I signed up this week and it's now full steam ahead. I will have more to share with you on the next episode as it will be an exciting project to work on. As part of that purchase, I've been speaking with a number of brokers and lenders about funding options for the site, and there is a dazzling array of options to consider with various costs and interest rates. It seems there is plenty of money around to fund projects, but it can come with a high price. At this stage, we are trying to secure funding from a bank, so we will see how we go with the application. All right, on to today's guest, Heath Thompson from Bella Project Marketing. Heath specialises in selling off-the-plan projects and brings a unique perspective to selling developments, having come from a family that was involved in developing property. And Heath has even completed a number of his own development projects. I'm always interested in the marketing side of a project, as I think it's fun to bring a site to market and see how it is received by prospective buyers. There are also lots of colourful and dynamic tactics you can use to attract interest and arouse emotions. In this conversation, we cover some of the timeless marketing tactics that you should still be using, how you can get out in front of other developers, and a different way to develop a buyer profile. We even discuss how to value a quarry. I think you will enjoy this conversation, and I started off by asking Heath what food he would eat until he was sick. Guilty pleasure, KFC. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> it's a pretty basic guilty pleasure. Yeah. I had a... Simple uh, man, simple pleasure. I had a guest not long ago who reluctantly admitted to being a KFC <laughs> fan as well. Yeah. Any a particular type of KFC meal or just... Oh, just the, old, the old-fashioned chicken. It's pretty, pretty basic. Yeah, we keep it simple. Yeah. <laughs> a friend of mine years ago put me onto the fact that you could ask them for, instead of having the potato and gravy, you could ask them just to have the gravy. Right. Which is awesome for dipping the chicken in and the chips. So, well, there's, a, there's a pot of gold there for you. Pro it. tip for you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I only know that because I too have a soft spot for KFC. I think we all do deep down, just whether you're willing to admit it. Yeah, which I try yeah. and hide from my wife. <laughs> Anyway, we're here today to talk about project marketing. Yep. Can you just give us a bit about your background, what you do, how you got to where you are today? Sure. So, um, yeah, my background is in property development, I guess. Um, so, family business. My father was a developer for you know for many years. So, I grew up on land subdivisions and you know, apartment developments and sort of dinner table conversation was always about property development in one form or another. So um, out of school, I went did a, a course at RMIT, business property, specialising in property valuations. Um, but it was always in the vision of going into development in one form or another. So um, I started working with, with my father um, and did so for about 13 years. And um, we built you know, a range of a range of projects from apartment buildings up to about you know, 50 apartments, uh, we built hotels, managed um, accommodation hotels as well. So, yeah, a big variety of, of projects. And, you know, my roles were everywhere from site acquisition through to uh, town planning, management of that process, appeals processes, um, you know, construction documentation, um, management of the construction process, right through to sales and everything else. So the whole spread of property development is basically my, my background. So, um, but really, what I probably enjoyed most out of all of it 
you know, even with our own projects, was the marketing side. So um, when Dad sort of moves to that sort of semi-retirement phase, and and um, I sort of was making a call really whether I you know, gear up and getting our own investor pool and you know, going on doing our own projects or doing the marketing side, I decided that I was sort of really sick of having some of the battles you do as a developer with um, you know, fighting councils, fighting builders, and it's you know just one battle after the next. So um, yeah, decided to go down the marketing marketing phase. So from yeah, from there start off as a as a real estate agent and. And to now we're um, working with Andrew Fall in um, Bella Project Marketing, and here we are. Well, it's interesting that you did a valuation course because I interviewed a valuer on the show, and I didn't realise yeah. how detailed the course was. Like a four-year degree, yeah. and there's actually a lot more to it than I had uh, previously given credit to. Yeah, I think that's that's why I, I liked it because it had such a broad base of knowledge for property, and um, it basically means when you go to almost any type of property you've got just a, a base level of knowledge that you can sort of build on fairly quickly which the subjects we would be going out and value inquiries and yeah we did you know rural valuations and all sorts of different properties you know, and what i was working in hotels just the basic live knowledge being able to work out income and cash flows and all those sorts of things was all based part of that you know came from that uni degree so it was a it was a, a really good um base learning so is that something that's helpful when you're doing due diligence on a site back in your developing days? 100%. Yeah, definitely. Um, just you know, being able to do a discounted cash flow, basic feas- feasibilities, and then you know, more complex feasibilities. Um, yeah, it was something actually during my um, my time we had to go and do we had to go and do like a work placement, and um, because I'd done so many feasibilities throughout my work life whilst I was doing my my course. The, um, the valuation team actually asked me, they got this new um, feasibility model, and they said, oh, can you teach us how to use it? Said, no worries. So my work placement was actually teaching the office how to do a feasibility. So, <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it's something that's always been our strength. And something we, we, I still do a lot of feasibilities now for projects that we take on for a, pro, for a marketing side. We'll get to so, the marketing in a second, but yeah. just out of curiosity, what did you value the quarry at? That's a good and question. I can't remember. Yeah. Well, it's all about <laughs> X amount of rocks. It's all about yeah. It's all about how much you can get out of it. That's where it comes down to. It's just uh, like any sort of valuation. It's all about the multiplier. So once you work out what that multiplier is, then you go from there. I also have a soft spot for marketing, coming from a comms background. So yeah. what is it about the marketing side of the developing that really appealed to you? I don't know. I think maybe just intrinsically, the sales is something that I enjoy. Yeah, that sales process has always been something that I, I quite enjoyed. I like um, putting together a product which is desirable to the marketplace. So, um, yeah, I, I really, it's basically as simple as that. I just quite enjoy it. Yeah, can you take us a yeah. bit deeper in terms of putting, when you're thinking about something to put together, what are the considerations you're going through, questions yeah. you ask yourself, market thoughts? Yeah, I think basically when I look at any at any project um, from my point of view, I always think about what I would would I live there myself? And I think if you can always bring it back to something as simple as that, you know, trying to sell something that you don't actually like yourself or you don't see as something that's being livable or anything like that is always a difficult task. But if you can bring it back to something that says, okay, I actually like this. I like this property or I like this project. There's you know, parts about this that I could see myself enjoying my life in. That's always a good place to start. Um, you, know, you can look at an investment 
portfolio and all those all those sorts of things. There's a whole lot of you know, ways you can design a project to suit investors and from a financial model. But if you can always come back to whether you actually would want to live in it yourself, I think that's always a really good starting point. Investment and all that sort of stuff will roll along from there. I thought that was always one of those mantras that property investors bang on about, not to picture yourself living in there. Yeah, I think um, there's quite a few that have been burnt by that by that thought process, and it's it's quite relevant now because there's been a, a significant change in the marketplace over the last year and a half, particularly since um, probably the last you know, eight months, eight nine months since uh, mid last year, where there's been stamp duty changes and such, but which has you know, driven a real focus on owner occupiers and all those that have gone into those investor-grade apartments, which are really designed around that financial model about maximising depreciation, maximising your rental yield, all those sorts of things have really have created quite undesirable places to live. So when it comes back on the market and your investor markets you know, dried up, you've got to go back to owner occupiers. And if nobody likes it, well, it's not going to sell. And there goes your capital growth and all those sorts of things that you want to tie into your investment long term. So share with us what you do now and the projects you work on, how you go about marketing them or developing a campaign for them. Sure. So um, I think for for us, I think our greatest strength with um, you know, my background and, and Andrew, my partner's background as well, we've we because we've done our own developments. I think the easiest way for us to have a real impact on a project is to get involved early and um, we're finding now that a lot of architects are appreciating the sort of feedback that we can give because it's not just about uh, making it easy for us to sell, it's also about making it a feasible project as well, making it profitable so um, the reason I, I say that is we, when we go to we go into a new project, we'll do an analysis of the area. So from a pricing point of view, so a two bedroom apartment will be in you know, X price range, three bedroom in certain price ranges, and we can design a project around those price points. So rather than the old way of project marketing is dollars per square meter, it's very easy to plug a dollar per square meter into a spreadsheet. And which will give you a gross realizable value at the end. But if your sizing and your product mix is wrong, you won't get that square meter rate. So sometimes you need to flip it on its head and look at the dollar value of the units, and then you can start you know, building around a GRV that you, is actually feasible for the project. And sometimes the project isn't feasible. And if that's the case, we'll, you know, we'll have that discussion with the developer early and say, look, this site really isn't, isn't a goer. Maybe we should even look at selling it. But um, the earlier we're involved, you know, the more likelihood it is we can actually turn to something that is feasible and, and works. We've got you know, a number of instances where we've done we've done that. We've just launched one in, in Brighton now, where um, yeah, the projects we've reduced the number of number of apartments. We've increased the GRV by uh, about ten to fifteen percent across the project, and um, it's now a very you know, feasible project. It's high quality. The reaction from the marketplace has been very good. And um, it's something that meets the marketplace and what's, what's required. So when you talk about getting the mix right, yep. can you think of an example where you look at the mix and you go, it's not quite right, and, and what's your thinking behind that? Yeah, it can go, it, it can go either way. So your product mix can be, um, at the moment, three-bedroom apartments. Everyone wants a you know, nice big three-bedroom apartments, and the tendency can be going the bigger the better. 
but there's a certain point where if you go over a certain size, you start to dilute your square metre rate. Yeah, it might be, so as an example, over in some areas might be over 150 square metres. Once you go over 150 square metres, you start getting less dollars per square metre over and above that. And the inverse can happen if you go too small because people start looking at them as more as a two-bedroom buyer. So if you do it for a small three-bedroom, people prefer it to be a two-bedroom a two apartment. Therefore, you don't actually you know, get the dollar per square metre. So it's, the mix is about matching the size to the price point and making sure that you're actually in what the market is desiring in any location. And it does differ from you know, area to area. I was just about to ask that. So is that... How do you go about figuring that out? Is it a combination of gut feel and market intelligence or and market feedback, or is there something yeah. deeper or not as deep? Yeah, no, we, we try to base all our, all our decisions and recommendations on fact. So we're, we're you know, very big on market research. So we'll do a full analysis on what's currently on the market and what's previously been on the market. And also look at what's selling because it's very it's very easy to, in the marketplace to look at what's for sale and look at those as being you know, indicative price figures. But sometimes what's for sale is not actually selling. So if it's not selling, we've got to find out why. Is it too expensive? Is it too big? Is it too small? Or what is it? What is it about that product that's not working? And then you can start to pull pull it apart as to what's actually desirable in the marketplace. So you're talking about your own projects that you're selling or other projects on the market. Well, I've, I haven't done my own development for a little while now, yeah. so I'm talking about project, this is what we do for other developers. Yeah, in terms of project marketing. But yeah, I'm exactly. just curious, how do you... It's always difficult to find out how other projects are selling, isn't it? Uh, look, there's, there's always ways. Yeah. Um, you know, there's, we do tend to know a lot of people in, in the industry, and um, you do rely on you know, speaking to people. It's really just you know, getting out to the marketplace and talking to people to understand really what's, what's happening. Because it's if you just spend the whole time on Google, you'll never get the real story. Yeah, you've got to, you've got to dig a little bit deeper. Yeah. Is that a contentious comment to make? <laughs> Everything on Google isn't uh, correct. It's quite topical, isn't it? Or Facebook. Yeah. And so, let, I'm curious about exploring what you do when things aren't moving. So, if you find out from a colleague that yep. X project isn't selling and they think it's because of the size or whatever it is Mm -hmm. what in their case what would you suggest they go about doing once the project is up and running and on the market yeah and that's I guess that's where it's very much dependent on on the project itself Um, we've had projects um, where one project in Richmond um, big project 140 apartments um, was really designed for that investor market and sold quite well early at a range of overseas buyers and local buyers. And then it switched and became very much an owner-occupier market. We started selling more apartments to owner-occupiers. And then we got to a point where our stock level that we had left was more aimed at the investor market, but the buyers we had were more were more owner-occupiers. So we had to try and make changes to our stock level. So we went about having a look at which units we have. There'd be as an example, say two one-bedrooms next to each other. There might have been two smaller one-bedders we combine to make a large two- or three-bedroom apartment. And it's working within that structure. I think that's probably where you know, my background from a, a construction point of view and being involved in that construction design and you know, management process that 
can generally look at a building and say, okay, here's an opportunity to combine, you know, working around the current services layouts and you know, services ducts and make sure you don't muck up the structure of the building and uh, but still you know, create something which is you know, acceptable to the marketplace. So there's, it really is a case-by-case, case, but there's a lot of, I could reel off a you know, number of examples where we've been combining units or you know, turning two into uh, three apartments into two apartments or two into one and, and those sorts of things just to you know, try and get the right result. And what about other incentives? Are there kind of packages that you find work or is it trying to squeeze blood out of the stone? Uh, incentives are... are an interesting one. Often, what I find is when you're um, when you're offering incentives, you know, and there's a lot of big incentives in the marketplace, whether they be you know rental guarantees, the pretty standard sort of one, and blinds packages, which everyone knows. But there's some big commissions that are offered, you know, sort of behind closed doors to a lot of you know to a lot of different agents. We get offered you know up to nine percent, nine ten percent commission sometimes, you know, to sell to sell an apartment. But I look at it. And Go back to the old, the old thing. Would I would I want to buy that apartment? And more often than not, in that case, the answer is no. It's either not a good layout, or it's overpriced, or something to that effect. So, if you need that sort of incentive, it's generally there's something intrinsically wrong with the product. Um, so, what we tend to do is more focus on trying to get the product right, get it priced right, and then that's no longer a problem. I mean, off, off market, there's always, you know, incentives to, you know, investor channels and such, which are, you know, sort of part of the part of the business. But um, when you start getting into the real sort of upper echelon of all these, you know, crazy cashback scenarios, rebates, massive commissions, all that sort of stuff, it just, it generally means that intrinsically there's something wrong with the, with the project. All right, so let's jump back to projects that are good intrinsically yep. <laughs> positive you've <laughs> yeah. had your fingerprints all over them or you've had a look at them and think yes this is good yep take us through the campaign development and what you start thinking about might be on the floor plates once they're or the floor plans once they're locked in and you're happy with them okay so from, from there on it's i guess whilst we're designing those those floor plans and floor plates we're talking about you know what our buyer is so it's almost you know, like building that avatar you hear often a lot of sort of social media context and what have you, but it's about building, you know, what your typical buyer is. So if it's a, you know, a downsizer, you know, we're looking for someone who's come from a substantial home, they're used to having a good sized living space, they want a master bedroom, which is going to fit the sort of things that they, they're used to. They might have a proprietary piece of furniture, chest of drawers or something they want to bring along with them. So it's about making sure that that master bedroom has a space for that, it's got adequate wardrobe space and a good size ensuite. So you want to make sure that that's got you know, room for a king size bed and all those sorts of things. You want to be able that buyer to envisage themselves having you know their children, which are generally older children now coming around for dinner, grandchildren. Where are their grandchildren going to sleep? Those sorts of things are about you know the sort of thing we need to be thinking about in our marketing and how we how we attract those buyers. So it's it's about that story behind the project um, as to what's inside the project. But then you also look about what's outside the project and the location. So whether it be, you know, the standard things being public transport and shopping and those sorts of things as well. But if you've got something unique, like, for example, in um, in Brighton, this project is in the Martin Street Village. So it's got this beautiful sort of village culture. And within Brighton, it's quite rare. Everyone thinks of Brighton of, you know, being Church Street or Bay Street and quite sort of, you know, sort of big centre strips. Um, whereas this has got that real nice little sort of urban culture 
which is very very much unique to the area. So it's about running off the back of that. It's very easy when you're in Bayside to say beach, sand, water, boats. It's very easy to go down that line. But if you pull it back and really look at what the buyer wants and is actually going to be attracted to in that area, it's more about that you know, that little village lifestyle. So it's very much dependent on, on where you are and what the project is. So when you talk about having an avatar and you use the example of the downsizes, yep. I prefer to call them right sizes. Yeah. Looking to right size their properties <laughs> yes. for that stage in their life. Yep. And you talk about they picture themselves with the with the children and the grandchildren and the big pieces of furniture. Yeah. But how do you go about then triggering that in your campaign material or in your copy or what yeah. tools are you using to trigger that? It's some really some really simple things and I think really what most people want is on those floor plans. It's in that detail. So, um, you know, all the pretty pictures and everything are are wonderful. Everyone's used to seeing pictures of school zones and cafes and coffees and a lovely, you know, breakfast, you know, the smashed avocados sitting there on a plate, all that sort of stuff. You can only use that for the uh, older demographics. uh, Exactly, yeah. You can't use it on the kids anymore. (laughs) Exactly. So, but everyone's used to that. Everyone's seen it. Everyone, it needs to be there because it looks great but everyone expects it everyone just flicks through it so it's about what actually has meaning to it so the meaning is in the detail in, in my mind and my um, again I always I always draw on my a technical background because that's my my strength so I'm talking to people about you know, how the how the building's built I'm talking to them about you know, what makes a common wall so that you're not going to hear the neighbour next door um, when we do a floor plan, I always make sure that you know if we have space for a you know say a six or an eight seat dining table, you show a six or an eight seat dining table. Don't do a little four, a four seater. Um, if you've got space for a, a large lounge suite, show a large lounge suite, demonstrate it. Or a king size bed, actually draw it there on the floor plan, so you can demonstrate this is what we're thinking and this is how you're you're living and we're thinking about how you live. So that's really, I guess. The hard bit to demonstrate in a brochure, you can't, but that's when someone comes into a display suite, you need to be able to show that. So I wanted to ask your views on inserting people into renders. Yeah. Yes, no? I don't, really, ha- I don't really have a view, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I, I get the idea, you know, it's about you know, getting perspective. So um, so it has, a, it has a purpose in that in that sort of instance. Um but yeah, I don't really have a view as to whether it's right or wrong. Yeah, it's just horses for courses, really. Yeah, yeah. I know people always say you sort of ostracise a particular group potentially if they're not included in the in the render. But I think it adds some dynamism. Yeah, and activity if you can get some people, humans, in yeah. there doing something. But well, I, I think really the the biggest advantage of that is you know, demonstrating scale. So we've got a person which is our know, a five foot ten person it just gives scale and that's really probably the greatest strength of it and in terms of tactical pieces that you would include in your collateral suite are there any Mm -hmm. stock items or are there things that you're now bringing online or that you're bringing into the mix that you think are working yeah look I'm pretty traditional in in the way yeah, we work and as far as our, our market goes, like a you know, good quality brochure, flip book. Um, you know, a display suite is a huge part, I think, in, in the current marketplace. 
if um, if you can provide a good display suite which helps you demonstrate scale and helps you demonstrate the quality of, of what you're doing and I think it also gives you an opportunity to stand by your product as a developer so if you've got the confidence to put it out there this is what we're doing it gives the buyer confidence that you know that you're you're willing capable and, and able to put it all together um, it also demonstrates you know, financial capability to actually to put that there because I think a lot of people in the current marketplace are, are worried about you know the financial strength of you know, developers and, and other, you know, the financial landscape is is not an easy one at the moment. Yeah, I might come back to asking you questions about which uh, yeah. developers uh, you choose to work with or that you like to work with, but yep. I'm just click keen to explore further the, the common questions that you'll then get from prospects or prospective buyers when they're coming in yep. to the suite, for example. What are the general things they're asking about? Yeah, the most common questions really are about the development team you know it's because you can go into any project now and everyone's got you know marble or you know nice stone everyone's got melee appliances everyone's got all the you know the same sort of bits and pieces everyone will say their floor plans are the best of course ours are but you know everyone will talk <laughs> everyone will say theirs are the best uh, everyone will say their location's the best and what have you so there's all those sorts of things which are really common across a vast array of projects um, what really makes you stand out is that is that attention to detail and is that um, strength of your development team. So whether it be your architect, your builder, the you know, developer themselves, development manager, all those interior designer, everyone who's involved in actually bringing that project from where it is there at that stage, you know, it's got a permit, it's got a you know interior design that looks wonderful on the renders to actually getting it there as a finished product. Who's actually going to make that happen? And that's that's such an important part of the moment. I think a lot of people forget. So if you can if you can build a good story around who you are as a developer, that's going to go a long way to actually you know, putting you in the front of the pack. Yeah, because I would have thought for, for you as a professional mm-hmm. as a marketer, yeah, there's a reputational risk there for you as well if you're going out bringing something to the market, putting your yeah. name next to it. Yep. And then the finished product is significantly different or different enough for yeah. buyers to be a bit grumpy. Well, it makes it look you're like we've misled you're them. copying it. Yeah. It's, we're very conscious of that. And um, it's very easy, I think, in, in real estate to have a short, you know, short-term goals. You can say, I want to, you know, it's X amount of sales now and it's all about, you know, you know, getting as much income in as you can, which you know, we're all about we're all about doing. But at the same time, you've got to look long-term because if you think too short, you'll have a very short career because you can't just keep churning stuff out and assuming everyone's just going to expect it and they expect, you know, rubbish. And you give them rubbish and they get, your name is going to get dragged down with it. So if you, can, um, if you can tie yourself with good projects, good developers, good teams and you know, bring out good quality products and then you're associated with those ongoing... And that's really why you build a longer-term career. And so then how do you go filtering or determining which developers you work with and what are the things that you're looking for? Yeah, well, a lot of it starts with that basic feasibility at the start, making sure the project actually stacks up. So unless I can you know, do a, a basic feasibility on a project and see that it's actually got a profit margin in it, you know, on a, you know, we're talking you know, very much basic feasibility, but if at that stage it doesn't stack up, well, I know the bank's not going to lend money on it. 
So it's going to be very difficult for that developer to get funding to build the project. And that means I'm selling apartments to people who are going to have a deposit sitting there for four years and a, you know, whilst, that, um, whilst the sunset clause ticks along, and at the end they're going to be disappointed. So really it all starts with that. So if it stacks up, then great, and then we go to the next stage. And then the next stage is you know who they are, what sort of background they've got, what sort of builders are we talking to, and architects and development managers and everything else. What's what's that team? What do the same thing as any buyer would do? Who's actually going to deliver this to the to the finished? And if it's got gaps in it, well, can we help them fill the gaps to make sure that you know the team has the the right stuff to get there to the end? Okay, mm. and then going back to campaign materials. So we've touched on the traditional, I guess, printed collateral. What about digital stuff? Yeah. What are you What are you doing there? What are you recommending? What are you seeing emerging? Social media is a big part of it. Big part of advertising with you know Facebook, Instagram, um, you know, Google AdWords, and those sorts of things have been around quite a while. But um, you know the old you know, dropping the cookie when you inquire on something and being able to follow your buyer around <clears throat> around the you know, around the web is really a big part of what we're doing now. And I think that's having a pretty significant effect on, on print media because you can, it's a lot easier to track at what's you know, where your spend's going, where your inquiry's coming from, and it's flexible as well rather than with you know, print media, which still has, certainly does still have a place. But with print media, it's very much you put it out there and you're hoping. And it's hard, very hard to track where your money's going. You know, traditionally, you, you, know, you, put a, you put a print ad out, you might say two or three weeks later, you start getting sales coming in. You say, well, okay, there's been a peak on the back of that. Whereas um, with social media, you can see very directly where the inquiry is coming from. If you know, a certain image isn't, is performing better than another, then you swap, you can make changes, and it's very much real time. And uh, the, the volume of inquiry is, is quite a lot higher. And so is that a combination of stills and video or what sort of assets are you yeah, putting out there dependent. into the social media pond? Yeah, I, look, it's very easy as a, as a project marketer to say you want to spend more on marketing. So you want videos, you want 3D, and you want, of course, you want everything because it makes, makes your life easier. But in the end, it's about working to a, to a budget, which is, again, all comes back to that feasibility. So we can say, you know, spend 500000 on marketing um, yeah, is that what we need to spend? So it's about having a, a budget which is appropriate, and um, and then you're working working around that. So it is very much dependent on the project. Big projects, bigger budgets. So you you throw you throw more at it. You might be springing it over a longer timeline. A smaller project, the focus may be to try and you know, sell quickly, and that's that again comes down to the developer as well. You know, are we looking for you know, fast sales, so that's a mixture of price and marketing. You know, you've sort of you've got to go in, go in on that. Or if it's a longer sales campaign, where we're going to be more patient, well, let's look to you know, sort of spread it out further. So it is very much horses for courses again. And so there are a couple of tactics that are at the top of the tree that you just immediately go, "We've got to do X, Y, and Z." And what would they yeah. be? Well, the, the big ones, the big ones are always, you know, you've got to be on realestate.com.au, you've got to be on domain. You know, they're the two major platforms, you've got to be there. Um, it's just a matter of, you know, what you do within those platforms. Um, and there's, you know, a raft of options available. So, um, you know, they're, they're pretty good at 
you know, providing you another way to spend some more marketing marketing money. So, um, so yeah, it's about you know, managing where you get the best volume. And social media at the moment is a is a lay down bazaar. You've got to you've got to be on it in one form or another. And then a campaign website or a project website. Yeah, websites are, are important. Um, depending on what you know, again scale and the scale and budget within the project. So smaller projects, you can you know, sometimes you can get away with just a landing page, which is you know directing directing to inquiry, and then you follow it from there. Bigger scale projects, you know, we you need to you know put more information on there, and it's more about showing more about the development team and all that sort of stuff as well. Um, it's there's always the the catch the catch between two how much information you put out there and how much you want the buyer to come to you for. So um, there's always a balancing act there of you know, giving enough but not too much, and vice versa. And what about video? What's your yep. view on that? Video is a a tough one because it's kind of like a brochure. You know, it looks looks fantastic, but often doesn't give you the, really the detail that you want. And that's that's the thing from a buyer's point of view. What are they actually going to get out of it? So um, often the you know a relatively cost-effective video is using the renders, you know, fading in, fading out, and a bit of movement, a bit of music, and some lifestyle shots and everything. Else. It's it's pretty easy to put together a relatively cost-effective video. Um, if you're doing something which is fairly groundbreaking in a new area and you need to go beyond that, that's probably where the video is probably comes in, you know, becomes more important because you need to try and I guess show that that vision. So yeah, again, really very much project specific. Um, I wouldn't say video is is vitally important, but it can be useful if done properly. And then what about getting the developer or the, some of the project team speaking? This is in a video. Is, yeah. Do you see value in that? Sometimes. Yeah, depends if they if they're any good at presenting. Yeah, <laughs> really. Yeah, um, and that you know comes down to the confidence in the in the developer and such. I've got you know some developers who love we you know, love doing interviews and we do a lot of work with our PR our PR company as well, so that we you know getting interviews through whether it be you know the Age Financial Review or or you know Urban Melbourne and you know, all these other all these other platforms. Um, so we do a lot of work there. Um, but it really depends on the willingness of the developer to be able to do that and how important their brand is to them. So some developers, you know, the brand is very much important. They're building a legacy. So getting out there you know, is all part of what they want to, what they want to do. I've got others who, who just don't want to, don't want to do it. So yeah, it can be, but it can be quite useful. And you mentioned budget. What, have you got any rules of thumb? Percentages of the project, or yeah, anything like that. I guess an old rule of thumb was sort of you know one and a half percent of the GRV, so the gross realizable value. That's um, a pretty good rule of thumb as a starting point, and then you, know, you sort of work work back or forward from there. Generally back. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's really like it's a it's a game of compromises. Really, it's just how much you can compromise and get the result you need. And it all comes really comes down to speed of sale, but I, I think most most developers recognise that the best the best time in the project is when the project's fresh to the marketplace. So it's about getting the best value you can out of that out of that launch period. And what is it you what is it about what do you enjoy about working with developers? Yeah, what. Um, it's well, I'm sorry, there's a presumption there. Yeah, that's you know. <laughs> what is it about them that you find um, appealing or 
what is it about the personality or the types of developers? Maybe that's a better way of doing it. Yeah, look, I, I think in my makeup is kind of development. It's just been there for as long as I can remember. So for me, not to be involved in some in development in some capacity would be a pretty strange outcome for me. So um, look, I, I enjoy. Um, I guess in, I enjoy troubleshooting is probably a, a simple way to put it because I like working wa- ways to make things better. I like working around, around a problem. If we've got a, you know, a buyer who says I can't, I can't go ahead for whatever reason, I want to get rid of that reason and make sure we, you know, we find a way to make it happen. And you know, you know, in today's marketplace, it's a, a much tougher position. So being able to work around those problems is probably what's setting the difference for us at the moment, whether it be whether it be a finance or it's a layout or whatever else. Um, you know, we're having a lot of times where a buyer will come and say, oh, no, I'm not going to go ahead. And then a couple of days later, we've found a, you know, a resolution to the problem and you know, we've got a sale. So, yeah, I guess that's really part of it. Yeah. So you see developers also being problem solvers and think good to work with in that respect or yeah, is and something different? Well, like everything, it's personalities. Yeah, some are good, some are bad, some are some are easy to get along with, some are really tough, um, and it's it's all about you know that in itself could be troubleshooting, you know, troubleshooting your personality. But um, I think in, in general, if if you're all along for the ride to the same goal, and it's been it's part of building that team. I, I've got you know I love team sports and all those sorts of things. So building a team is you know, a really important part, and development is very much about building a team. And if you get that team, everyone's on the same path together. It's you know, it's all going to the goal. The goal is the project's finished and sold out, and that's that's the premiership flag. So it's all about going. It's all about going for that. So for me, that's sort of my that's my level of excitement. Bring it all, to, you know, helping to bring it all together. Play your role in actually making a, a successful project. What about some of the things that developers do that <laughs> cause you consternation <laughs> or have you pulling your hair out? Well, I think. Um, Look, in, developers have a have a intrinsically have a mindset of a you know, go get them sort of attitude, and um, it's always you know sort of often sort of bucking a trend. And there's a lot of I think if you understand the development process, the development process is butting heads a lot of the way. It's a lot of confrontation. It's a lot of battles. You know, it's really moving from one battle to the next. And um, I think if you don't understand that part about the development process, you'll always find yourself. You know, sort of butting against developers are probably not really getting anywhere. Anywhere, so I think if you understand what's trying to be achieved, then you know you'll you'll get there. But it's that's I guess the greatest challenge is understanding what they need to achieve out of their project. Because some developers, it's it's about you know protecting asset value, and others it's about just getting rid of them and you know moving and moving on to the next one. So what's you know what's their focus? That's that's the greatest challenge. I think generally once you've got that. You know, things can you get on the same page and move move forward. Yeah. All right, casting your mind back over your career, can you think of yep. moments or times when yeah, we got that wrong with the marketing? And yeah, what was it? What did you learn from it? And how did it improve things for you in the future? Yeah, well, exactly everything I've just said about developers, I did as well. So I sat there and said, "Of course I'm right. I'm the developer. I know what I'm. I know what I'm doing. You know, I'm. I'm the one here. It's battling. You know, butting against council and builders and everything else. You know, and I've I've put all the work and you know, mine's better than anyone else because it's mine. I did it. Yeah. So that's. I think 
what I've what I've learnt is that sometimes you get so much in your bubble that trying to take feedback is the can be the greatest greatest hurdle. So if you can pull yourself out of the bubble and sort of you know, step out and say, okay, now where where do I sit in the world, so to speak? Um, you know, where is my project? Am I really as good as anybody else? Are there competitors out there that are better than me? Are they cheaper or whatever else? It's about really just understanding your place or your project's place in the market. If you can do that, that's, I think, really probably the most important starting place for any project. And so are there things that you just, you're just very focused on now or much more focused on from a marketing perspective and a project yeah. marketing perspective? Yeah, so I guess there's there's two two points is market research, making sure that you know pricing is right relative for what the project is and to and to the competition and making sure your layout's right as well. Those two those two parts, everything from there, you know, should flow relatively well if you get those two bits right. So how do developers get the pricing wrong? Is it just because of the aspirational desire to achieve a certain level? It's not really based in reality, or well, why do they? It's, why would they start thinking like that? It's really easy on a spreadsheet, and I've done this. I've really, I've done this myself plenty of times. Where you sit down there and you look at your spreadsheet. Okay, so this is what it is, and when you get emotionally invested in a project, you um, the numbers look different to you as to what everyone else does. It's that bubble. You get caught in this bubble of your project and you go, oh, if I just squeeze this a little bit here, squeeze that a little bit there, my price goes up just a little bit more and you see the way it affects the bottom line, you go, oh, okay, that's, that's pretty attractive or that's where I need to be. That might be where I need to be for a funding purpose or it might be to cover a land purchase, which I've stretched just a little bit too far. Um, so there's a number of different reasons. It could be you know, planning. You've gone through planning and the permit you've got is not quite where you want it to be, but you still need to maintain your your uh, your revenue out of that. So what am I going to do? So it means probably your price has gone up or have you been, you know, if you've lost a level through the planning process, does that mean your basement's got to change and now you're putting car park stackers in instead of you know, on-grade car parks? And how's that affecting your price? Instead of saying, okay, I've got stackers in there, but my price stays the same, knowing that the market, you know, what you're presenting to the market is different. So um, there's a lot of moving parts, and it's an understanding that when you when you go through that process, that your feasibility changes as the process you know, changes your model. And like, that's the hardest thing about development. There's a lot of things there that are out of your control. So. Yeah, and I think you mentioned to me previously how you'd given some input to a developer about their proposed scheme that you didn't think it would get through at council, but they pursued it anyway. Yeah. And it failed, and then they came back to you, and you gave them some ideas about something and a scheme that might work a bit better and be more attractive to council. Yeah. Well, I think, um, again, having been involved in so many applications, you can see, sometimes you can just see what's what's going to happen before it happens and um, you know this in this case it was a, a project it was um, the initial application for was I think it was 27 apartments and um, the car was a single little basement with car park stackers and um, they were very small apartments it was very much a it was almost a yield study the way this design the way this design was so it was getting as many apartments in there more apartments means more revenue and that was kind of the that was the it just looked like that was the philosophy behind the project and um, we looked at that and said, well, 
one from you know pricing this project up is very difficult because I think the product you're providing nobody's going to like, and it was we had we were as brutal as, as that because yeah they needed to they needed to hear that, and I, the other thing was from a density point of view I think there's too much density in the project so from a from a council point of view I, I don't think they're going to like it either, so you've got too many too many units in there, not enough parking yeah you know, it just it, it's all crammed in and. Um, I said, "There's every likelihood you're going to go through this council process, and you're going to get you're going to get knocked back." And um, I said, "What I'd like to do is, if you could appoint us to work with you, we'll um, we'll you know give you some guidance, and we think we can not only get something which is more palatable for council, but we'll you know create better revenue." And I said up front, "I said we think we can increase the revenue by ten percent." And you know, there was us and other other agents they were talking to. We all agreed what the current value of that of that project was and we said that's what it's worth now but if you do this you know, we'll get a better result for you so anyway they said no no we want to get a permit first we went went to council they got knocked back um, when I heard of their decision I gave them a call and said look before you go to VCAT let's submit amended plans to VCAT and um, hopefully we can get it through on you know, mediation rather than go to a full hearing so they said okay alright you're on the team so we, we came in, we sat down with the architect, had quite a few meetings, gave a, a very different design brief. The 27 apartments became 15. Um, the car park went to a two-level basement, so it was all on-grade parking, which was a significant expense, but our revenue was going up to cover it and, and a bit. Um, you know, our, the quality finish went, went up, but, you know, it all, it all made sense. You know, we were you know, sort of um, cost-managing the process as well. And then, sure enough, we went to... Went to VCAT, had a mediation, got a, got council on side of the, through the mediation process, and they came out with a permit. So, um, yeah, they don't all work perfectly like that, but that's the sort of input we love being able to, to put in. So, when they do get their permit, one, they actually get the permit, and two, they come up with a, with a product which is ready to go to marketplace rather than have to redesign afterwards. So, yeah, that's that's the theory behind it all, anyway. <laughs> it's always nice when it works out. It is nice when it works, yeah. <laughs> So tell me, what's the best piece of advice or wisdom that you've ever received or something you've learnt along the way? Um, well, I think probably it's stepping out of that bubble. And um, if, you know, stepping out of the bubble and doing your research and understanding where you sit in that marketplace, um, wherever, wherever it might be, and that could be, you know, in a range of, in a range of different scenarios is not necessarily just in, in development but in life if you step out of your own bubble we all get caught in our own little worlds so if you can step out of your own little little world for a second just see where you sit in the in the world then um, you know, that can often give you some good perspective and help you make some better decisions so that's generally my wife's very good at actually helping me give perspective she's a she's a, a nurse and she sees some pretty tough things in life so whenever you have a bad day come back and have a chat to my wife Sophie and she'll generally sit you pretty straight keep you grounded yeah yeah you, I think you realise that your problems aren't generally that big yeah that's right I yeah. actually remember travelling when I was much younger and I'll never forget seeing some kid come going past me on a skateboard yep with no legs and just pushing him along with his hands and I thought my life's never going to get as bad as what that kid's going to have to go through in life. So that's a good yeah. grounding thought uh, at times when it's all swirling around and it seems pretty difficult. Yeah, exactly. And we, you know, we complain our coffee took too long to come out. Yeah, yeah. There's big, much bigger problems out there. So, 
So if you could go back in time and talk to a younger Heath, yep. what point in time would you go back to and what would you say to him? Uh, I think if I was going to go back, go back, I'd probably go back to my you know, early 20s, which I think probably a lot of people would say would say go back to there because you, you're all full of vigour and, you know, and ready to take on the world. But I'd, I'd say probably to um, believe in yourself because you know, sometimes you can be led down certain paths by certain people and what have you. So it's, I think sometimes it's, again, stepping stepping back and just sort of assessing the scenario and um, believing in yourself. Because I think if you do that, you don't just you know, take the sheep-like mentality and follow along, that sometimes you make a better decision. So, yeah. And if you could sit down f- for a meal with any three people, alive or dead... Who would they be and why? Yeah, that's a tough one. I've, I've thought about this quite a lot. I've agonised over this <laughs> over this question, but um, I brought it. I brought it down to to three. Um, I think Barack Obama. I'd love to. I'd love to sit down with him just for someone who has you know an absolute command and presence of you know any, wherever he is. Um, actually, I watched an interview with him recently with David Letterman, which is just fascinating. Just a, a fascinating man. Um, I'd also like to meet a Mad St Kilda fan. I'd like to you know, sit down with Robert Harvey. Um, reason being, Robert Harvey is someone who's you know, just a, a brutal commitment to what he was what he was doing and a work ethic. I think second to, to none. And I think that sort of work ethic is I think what we all you know, say we want to do and whatever else, but to actually do it, I think is is another thing again. And then um, another one was Lane Beachley, um, which you know, I think for. For a woman in very much, she was a, a pioneer in you know a man's a man's world of, of surfing, which is you know generally a very much an accepting community anyway. But what she what she did, um, you know, the world titles, and, you know, again and again, and consistent performance over such a long period, I think, is a very difficult thing to achieve. So that's that's a pretty ad- admirable quality. What do you reckon you've learned about yourself along the way? Um, you don't know everything, <laughs> so it's. You know, again, you know, take yourself out of the bubble. You know, just just understand where you where you sit in the world. And um, you know, people have got there's a lot of good advice out there if you'll sit back and listen to it. So I think what I've learned about myself is that whilst I've got some I've got some you know good assets, good qualities, and, and a good skill base, um, if you understand the things you don't know, I think that's when you really get the the best out of yourself and the others around you. So. Yeah. And your top tip for developers out there to help them take their business to the next level? Listen to good advice. That's that's the hardest bit. And it's really easy when you're when you're investing so heavily, whether it be your own your own money is often the case, and there's a lot on the line when you're when you're a developer. Um, being able to trust someone else's advice is very difficult because there is so much on the line for you. So um, being able to develop, build a good team around you that will give you good advice is probably the greatest, the greatest asset. And again, knowing what you don't know, that's and, and acknowledging that and using that to fill the gaps. Because if you fill those gaps with good, good people and good and good skills, that's when your development team will really grow. You can't do it all yourself. You just can't. It's, you can't be a town planner, a builder, an accountant, a solicitor, you, you know, an engineer. You can't be all of it. So understand what you are good at and then fill the gaps. Fill the gaps elsewhere. Well, as Donald, Donald Rumsfeld would say, the, the known unknowns. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> Not they're the easy unknown to, unknowns. They're easier to find than you think. 
Yeah. Well, Heath, where can people find out more about you if they're interested? Yeah, well, you can always give me a, always give me a call, um, which, you know, give me my mobile number, so 408 or on our Bella website, bella.com.au, and, um, you know, through the project page there. So, um, yeah, we're not too hard to find. Google is generally a pretty good way to find us too. Is there an intriguing reason or story behind the name, Bella Project Marketing? Uh, well, Bella actually started way back, way back when with uh, Nathan Bella. And that's where it, where it started. Andrew Fall took bought that business off off Nathan and so on and so forth. That's you know twenty odd years ago. Yeah, so yeah, it does have does have quite a long history in the area. Well, Heath, thank you so much for being on the Property Developer Podcast. I'm very grateful to you for sharing all your information and ideas with us. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. See you later. Cheers. Okay, there you go. I trust you enjoyed that conversation with Heath. I think he shared some good insights into how you can approach marketing your next development. There are a couple of things that stood out for me, including 1. Develop avatars or buyer profiles. Figuring out who your likely buyer will be is a great way to consider what will appeal to them and then lead you to develop materials that will attract them to your campaign. Heath gave the example of retirees or people moving out of the family home and into an apartment. He said they would be thinking about spending time with their kids over dinner or having grandkids stay over or may have nice pieces of furniture they are bringing from their previous home, so larger bedrooms or living areas may be appealing. Whatever you think they may want or like that your project provides can then be incorporated into the campaign materials. That may be a graphic of a six-seater dining table on the floor plans or showing a king-size bed in the master bedroom. All these things can feed into the idea that their needs have been thought of and you have been thinking about how they might live. So it is moving beyond simple lifestyle amenity in the local area. Though you should still consider those elements as part of your campaign materials. Two, have a great team. This comes up regularly and I think as markets soften, it will become more important to differentiate yourself from the competition. And the members of your team should be able to give you ideas and suggest details that will give you an edge or provide more value to buyers. Having a team of quality people, be it the builder, architect or interior designer, is also a great way to build up confidence with prospective buyers. If you are using trusted brands or good quality people, it can present a winning team to the market and it may put you in front of the competition. 3. Take a step back and look at the bigger picture. I think this is wise advice, and sometimes when you are deep in a complex issue or trying to solve a seemingly insurmountable problem, you can't see a way out or your view of the world is clouded. At these times, it pays to pause, take a step back and think about a grander scale, or reflect on what your mission and purpose is. Getting some perspective and breaking out of the bubble can help you refresh your approach or discover a solution. Having trusted advisors is a great way to sound out ideas Talk about the problem and figure out a response to the situation. Okay, that's another episode almost done. Don't forget to email me if you're interested in learning how to become a property developer, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And if you enjoyed that conversation about marketing, then check out some other past episodes of the show, such as episode 39 with marketer Tim Reed. Or discover how to harness the power of visual imagery with Stan Zaslavsky in episode 16. 
You can also find all the past episodes of the show at www.propertydeveloperpodcast.com and you can see all my latest property development photos and videos on Instagram and Facebook at Property Developer Podcast. So, until next time, may all your marketing be helpful and emotional. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas, and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.